good evening, everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming. My name is Max. Um, I'm one of the Ledbury Poetry Critics, and I am delighted to introduce this evening's event. Thank you to our uh, funders, our principal funder, Arts Council England, and the sponsors of this uh, particular event, Wendy and Stuart Houghton. Um, we really appreciate um, your generosity. And um, this evening, we'll be hearing from Anthony Joseph, um, who will be performing spoken word poetry accompanied uh, or by um, improvised jazz. Anthony Joseph is a Trinidad-born, UK-based writer, academic, and musician. He is the author of four poetry collections and three novels. His 2018 novel, Kitsch, a fictional biography of a Calypso icon, uh, was shortlisted for the Republic of Conscious Consciousness Prize and the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Award, and longlisted for the OCM Bocas Prize for, um, hold on, for Caribbean literature. Um, and he'll be doing a book signing after the event, and you'll be able to pick that up alongside um, some of his other work um, back there. In 2019, he was awarded uh, Gerwood Compton Poetry Fellowship. And as a musician, he has released eight studio albums and in 2020 received a Paul Hamilton Foundation Composers Award. He holds a PhD in creative writing from Goldsmiths University and is a senior lecturer in creative writing at King's College London. His most recent publication, which we'll be reading from tonight with Bloomsbury, is the collection Sonnets for Albert. Sonnets for Albert is a set of elegies for the poet's father. Um, it speaks to the complex experience of growth, growing up with an absent father. And it builds on the autobiographical themes in, of his earlier collection, Birdhead's Son. Um, since Sonnets for Albert has recently been shortlisted for this year's Forward Prize for Best Collection. Um, this evening, Anthony will be performing alongside saxophonist Jason Yard and drummer Rod Young, who will play improvised jazz accompaniment. Please join me in welcoming them now. Wow. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. That was, that was great. Nice to, to work with you. Yeah. So you guys, have, have you met Rod Youngs? This is Rod Youngs, if you haven't uh, met. And that's Jason Yard. Did Maggie tell you? Yeah? Okay. Sorry. So, um, yeah. So what, what we're going to do is, um, I'm obviously going to read from this collection, but the way we do this set, this particular project, is it's, the music is all improvised, and the way the music flows with the poetry, no one knows what's going to happen. It's just an emotion. It's a wave of emotion that we follow, um, which is kind of in homage to the way the book was put together and the sort of fragmented process of remembering my dad and stuff like that. Um, so, one of the things I will say, which might become relevant before we start, is that there's a lot of creolisms in this book. You know, I'm from Trinidad, and there's a lot of creole stuff you might not get, references you might not understand. If that happens, that's just too bad. <laughs> yeah, it's just too bad. Because, you know, I always say, you know, when I started reading Keats and Joyce, no one was helping me. <laughs> I was on my own. So, yeah, that's how it is. But I'll try to explain a few things as we go along. Anyway. Mm. 
El Socorro. In an April of Saturdays, I visit my father in El Socorro. He is clearly ill and living again as a bachelor. His philosophy, that if God gives him five more years, he wants those to be happy, has brought him here to a ground floor apartment on Jagroup Lane. Dust in the sun beams through both rooms. The furniture is old. Cardboard boxes of folded clothes. His tattered Bible and pillbox on the kitchen table. I take photos. Saddened to see where my father has arrived in his seventh decade. Does my father know he is dying? When I drive him to the pharmacy, I photograph his hands as he flirts with the chemist's wife. What is it about his hands? His forearm is mine, his fingers, the Saturday after he dies. I cannot go when my stepmother asks me to help her clear his apartment. Dreadlocks of mystery. He is a sour fruit in the mouth of his third son, the barber. And yet, as sweet as certain fruits are harsh sometimes, on speaking of him, my brother's smile assumes the phantom love a son has for a father. As the image, imagined image of the broken bridge lingers, as an apparition where it once stood or should stand. But do you have specific memories of him? Things I could poem, I ask. Brendan remembers in broad strokes, Gust of the Rogue, the saga boy who swooned in and out of their lives, who was broke by Sunday saying, money hard to find. My father has three children in Tobago, two sons, a daughter. Then another son appears from foreign, just so. Dreadlocks of mystery, kin we do not know.
the beer back. We slid you onto the bare back of the hearse was waiting. Your widow sat swaying upstairs in an air-conditioned chapel. I too had sat there gazing before at the ridge of your nose, but she could not look at your face. It was the leader of the church who rubbed oil on your lips who fixed the ring of flowers around your head. He was a tall, tamarind-colored man who apologized for having a cold, but who promised to deal with your body in the high spiritual way. You looked like my father, but something had been lost besides life. Maybe your mystery and mask were finally unraveling. Maybe there was never a mask at all. Maybe you were easy Caribbean man, a man who wore white and four silver rings, whose mother had to make room for him in her own grave. shame fathering all these children you scatter offspring all around the island like seed that get fling and still sprout in your walk away please how you could grin and claim is the woman say she wants a child from you as if it's trap she trap you I have an image of you waiting for a taxi in Correct 1973 in your gun mouth pants and suede boots, knocking the cigarette heel to the pack, black and handsome at sunset. And was you self, when your life force was leaving, who cry and say how you know you wasn't a good father. But it's a long time now, we forgive you, Albert. Not for what you was not, but for who you promised to be and unfulfill. For the way your laughter could spark up space like matchstick flame.
Okay. Um, I think that I should say a few words about my dad um, and why. You know, what's the point? Why am I even doing this? Why are we? Um, why am I writing a book of sonnets about my father? Well, a little bit of the history because it's a long history and I don't want to, you know, be tedious. But um, my mom and dad met each other when they were very young. My dad was like 19, maybe 20. My mom was 17 and uh, they met, she got pregnant with me, my mom you know, had me when she was 17, and then they, they had a very um, difficult relationship, let's say. They were kids, um, and they split up and came back together and split up and all that stuff. Um, and because they had nowhere to live, they, they were, my mom was living um, with her father, and I was like, I don't know, maybe one, one and a half years old, and my mom got pregnant again for my father. Um, and her father said, you can't, you're like 19, you got two kids, you got to give one of them away, you know? Literally like that, give one, of these, give, give one of these kids away. Why don't you give the older one to his grandmother? And I ended up having to go and live with my grandparents. Mom and dad split up. Dad went on to have, my father went on to have probably about 10 more children. No one's actually sure. He wasn't even sure. It's a bizarre thing. Um, anyway, yeah, he went on to have a lot more children. And then my mom had a few more. Not as much as 10, but she had a few. Um, but my father was a, became a muse to me, became a figure of mystery and enchantment because I lived with his mother. And she loved him, and some of that love rubbed off on me, even though he wasn't around. So he became, in his absence, even more of a presence in my life. You know, he became this myth of the father's Albert guy, this dude. And then he would turn up maybe once or twice a year, and he was always dressed impeccably, money, rings on every finger. This was the 70s. He was a dude. He was like the man. You know, like, damn. You know, suede, clocks, and, you know, bell bottoms, and, you know, hat, and, you know. Um, he was slick. He was real slick. Uh, and funny and charismatic and a ladies' man. And he was just, yeah, he was amazing in that way. But he was uh, an intermittent presence. So anyway, so that was the background. And then in the late eight, in the mid-80s, he came back to Trinidad to live permanently. He was living in Tobago all that time and came back and I got to know him a little bit more, a little bit, but still, you know, in fragments and fragments, very mysterious guy, very secretive, very private. Um, and hence, as a way of trying to contain the little fragments I have of my father, I put it into a book so that I can hold him in place and say, okay, he, he existed in my life. Here he is, you know. So that's what it is. Um, so, uh, there's something about D.C. going on. So, Rod is uh, from D.C. I know Maggie's lived in D.C. I know there's another D.C. connection here. <laughs> um, and uh, this is a poem that's set in D.C. This is a poem that, I, that is inspired by a, a conference I attended at Howard University many years ago when I began to think about the connection between absent fathers and creativity. Breakfast in D.C. That night, after the conference in D.C., we broke free of post-colonial tautology
to gather in the small room of the writer in residence. We were young scholars, poets, novelists, a journalist. We drank white wine warm and nodded to Neo Soul. I saw them recoil from the British resident when in the marrow dark of 3 a.m. he rightly said that there was nothing like the sweet kick of crack cocaine. At dawn, we drove out in the doctoral candidate's car. We saw the Doric pillars of the Lincoln Memorial glowing in the unclear distance, then the white gasp of the monument. We ordered pancakes with blueberries at Pete's on 2nd Street and shared our commonalities. And what we shared besides our blackness was that in our childhoods, our fathers had all been absent. Shame. My father died with his mouth open, gasping for air. I could not see his hands in the photo my brother took, the balls of his fist were at his side, stiff in the bag he had been zipped into. My father was not a large man, and in his time of dying had grown frail. He certainly would have been ashamed for anyone to see him this way, with teeth protruding, the dark and sunken sorrows of his jaw, and his eyes shut hard for the diving in, as if the blink would change the scene. Shame too. I was recording in St. Anne's and I had one day free. So I told my father I'd be back in December, and he said, December, no, I want to see my son, Tony. We in August. Everything is symbolic in literature. The dust at dry noon in Sambuco, the small birds within the emptiness of the cricket field, heat burning water into sound, tall jungle. My father appeared through curtains, thin with eyes that now saw past the limits of ours. The impish swirl of his laughter was gone. In the photographs I took that afternoon, he seemed to be leaning away, leaning as if from life, from love, in shame. Thank <laughs> you.
light light fill the air around these houses may my grandmother continue to water her roses and touch the aloe fronds in her forever time light as you lit the morning my father arrived unexpectedly in his new hillman hunter and mammy ran into the yard to embrace him and until my grandfather put wire around the veranda, I could sit and swing my legs off the banister, or from the garden spy up the thighs of my father's new girlfriend, as she laughed with ankles crossed as Albert molded his mother's anthuriums. My grandmother fried fish. We ate. She was happy. Even as she knew that later that afternoon, my father would be gone again into that gone momentum. I was saying, you know, uh, mom and dad split up really um, early in my life. I actually uh, have only one memory of them together. Um, I have one photograph, which is their, their wedding day, and I have one really fragment of a memory, which is, uh, uh, inspires the next poem, um, which is a really interesting space to be because they in their lives apart, they spoke very fondly of each other because they were like first loves for each other. So they, it was a really great love, even though they weren't together. So, um, but yeah, this is the only little fragment or little glimpse of a memory I have of them. Um, and it's sad that the memory is, is, is not, not a good memory, but it is what it is. Jogi Road. From life, from love, in shame. The red sawmill on Jogi Road with cedar grain in its fibrous air, red. The old train track and the bridge where my mother's rage was bruising the dark. Her fingernails ripped at my father's shirt, his face. This is blood. The way he looks away, then down with open palms in resignation. But memory has a curious sting. The red sawmill was not on Jogi Road, but on Silver Mill. And in the savannah there were five salmon trees which cried when cut, not six. 
my father held me over his shoulder that night. No, I was looking up from the road. charge hand. A man who wore white and four silver rings would be hunted down and peppered with licks if he ran away from a job with the workers pay. He was a charge hand, a lesser foreman, entrusted to oversee and keep morale. Instead he told dirty jokes. He made the men laugh. On Fridays, he gave them envelopes of colored notes. But one Friday, he disappeared. The men waited in the shade of the office awning, but he never came to pay. Someone heard that he'd left Tobago by boat that morning. The men vowed to kill him. They had wives and children. The myth of the car overturning was real, but would not have been reason enough to leave his new family. It would have been hard for a man to leave, even my father.
the tumuli in Santa Cruz. Fire for you and the mothers of the church lit candles upon your breastbone. Fire was lit even in the hole to purify the earth to receive you. They poured flame from brass goblets of croton and pink exora and swung a chant to kill death. O oh, death, draw out your sword. Your body lay in the sweet brown. The red church on the hill grew nervous in the noon. The long hearse purred in the sloping yard. Perfume sang from the bosoms of ants and far cousins. Look out over mountains. Look out where rayo trees are planted on tumuli of bones like ladders for spirits to cross into heaven. Oh, fold me in and fly me around the valley. We shall all be rooted in this well of ours eventually. gap in language. They are captured forever in monochrome on the leaning lawn of their wedding day in September 1966, before my grandmother dug up the ground to plant flowers. She sewed the dress my mother wore, but who sews a wedding dress? 
Press a footing on a wasp waste machine. I am also in the image. I am a gap in language. Silent until November. By then they had already begun to drift apart. My father told me how 20 years later, my mother arrived at the board house he was building on squat land in Shaguanas. He thought was to reminisce, but was to serve him divorce papers on a Sunday afternoon. I can imagine them together, but only as myth, sitting in his unfinished house, I came to know them apart, and I cannot bring them together in death. So now I wanted to take a pause, take a breath. I wanted to read um, a poem, give these guys a rest. Um, unfortunately, the poem I'm going to read is the shortest poem in the book, so there's not much of a rest. Um, yeah, so, yes, here it is. Um, I, as I said to you uh, earlier, my dad has, well, had a lot of children. Um, and he didn't even know how much children he had. I know probably about five of them, and the rest I have no idea who they are. Um, it's an interesting thing writing about something as personal as this, but um, it's good, it's good. And if you're a writer, a poet, uh, think about this, that the, the more personal you get, even if you're a novelist, the more personal you get, the more honest you are in your own work, it's the more people you reach, because the personal is the universal. The more personal you get, it becomes the universal. So uh, I'm happy to share any sort of aspect of this, knowing that somewhere out there, somebody's saying, yeah, I know what that feels like, you know, or someone's had a similar experience. Um, anyway, this is not a, a writing class. But um, the poem I'm going to read, as I said, is the shortest uh, sonnet in the book. I sort of experimented a lot with the form, the sonnet form. A lot of these poems started off as strict form sonnets. I started off for like, I don't know, almost a year working in strict form. And then after a while, my dad's voice started talking to me in my ear. So told me, what is this shit, man? What are you doing, man? Come on. That's not how it should be. That's not how I spoke. That's not me, you know? And his energy kind of infiltrated them and broke the sonnets in different ways into Creole. Um, so anyway, this is called Memory Ghost. Um, yeah, okay. Memory Ghost. My sister, Janelle, does not know our father has died. No one called to tell her. 
he has been dead for two months. And now she has nowhere to hide from her memory ghost of him. Poetry. When I give my father a copy of my book, he looks at the cover and says, that is you and Dennis. Where is that? Ramkisu and Trace? He fans the pages with his thumb. I watch until he pauses near the center to draw his head back, to fix his eye, to read. Then another few lines, before turning to the back and scanning the surface of the sentences there. The bio and the blurb are the things which make him smile. I don't think he ever read the poems. But somebody told him that I had written about his travels to the spirit world and to the Guinea coast, to China, in search of secret colors. And driving from the beach one day, he said, I hear you put in all my business on the internet. <laughs> then he laughed, but nothing else was said. son of 2nd Avenue. On 2nd Avenue, there was Bobby Cole, the soul man. Dark-boned and strolling smooth in his high clock boots. Passing the school, there was Sugar Bane and Half-Eye Mong, Redman the Stevedore, Jimmy the Thief, Saga Boy the Pimp. These were my father's friends in Old Mont Lambert. The ones who called him Bird Head because his head, they said, was too small for his body. As young men, they fished in ravines and picked fruit still warm from the vine. My Aunt Ursula tells me that my father had to leave Mont Lambert after his stepfather drew a shotgun against him. That same gun was drawn against me one night and just the sight of the barrel was terror enough. Those men in Mont Lambert knew me before my name and all through my youth along these avenues they smoked slow cigarettes and called me Bird Head 
Sun. Spain, Trinidad. There is anyone been to Trinidad? Anyone here been to Trinidad? Yes. Oh, more than one person. That's amazing. No, usually, yeah, usually it's just one person, but great. Um, yeah, so there's a hospital in Trinidad in Port of Spain called the Port of Spain General Hospital. Um, and there's a couple of poems in here. I'm going to probably just read one of them that is set there. So my dad was in and out of hospital, in and out of that hospital. Um, that's the hospital everyone gets born in and, and dies in. Well, not everyone, but if you're lucky, or unlucky, maybe, you go there to end your days. Um, but what's interesting about that hospital is that in Trinidad, in Port of Spain, we're famous for the carnival, which you might know. So every year, the carnival route of the procession would pass in front of the hospital, which is an interesting thing to do when people are sick or whatever. There's music and noise and stuff passing. So it passes the hospital and then it goes and it passes in front of the jail, which is another really unfortunate thing for if you're in jail, you know? So yeah, it's just a really interesting route. Anyway, this is um, Port of Spain General Hospital 1. Having caught his first heart attack, the big man gives me hope to hold says he feels good enough to leave. He flirts with the nurses. He is in hospital on Charlotte Street. The hospital that always smells of burnt milk and disinfectant. That same hospital of first consciousness where I visited my grandfather after his blackout and sickness in 1977 after stopping with my grandmother on Gordon Street corner 
to buy the old bull peanut punch and mopsy biscuit. The hospital of windows from where I watched blue smoke rise from the morgue and turned away from my mother's bed to catch my evening flight. Two days later, she blinked hard into cancerous death. That same ex-colonial hospital by Memorial Park, where my father once lifted me onto his shoulders so I could see the carnival pass. I think uh, I'm just going to probably read one more, maybe two more, since they're quite short. Precipice. They sent me that dusk to find my father in the gambling rooms near the precipice in the quarry. There below was eternity in rockstone death and perched on the edge was the wooden veranda where rough men threw cards, where dice were rolled and the earth was slippery with piss. I looked for my father among their faces, but it was so long since I had seen him that the looking was tough and wore me down. So I walked out on First Avenue with red dirt on my feet. And suddenly, there was such brightness in the sky, which was not the sun, but the sky lid opening to burst with celestial light. And I looked right into it, and I knew then what death would feel like falling to sharp and deadly stone waiting beneath. Tumulus 2. We lit candles on the tumulus of, date of dirt which lay upon him. Heavier than when I pressed his breastbone in the chapel and his flesh sprung back, not soft from rot, not yet. Palm like Palm Sunday was 
fixed into wings around his neck and shoulders for slow cameras to pan from chest to face. We waited until he was well settled in the dirt before we left. And at the house, the cousin with the long, long dreadlocks that wrap up in a scroll, the one with the biblical name, who say he don't communicate by computer, he don't email. Then Michael, Crystal Big Son, who three days later was to bury his own brother, poured us the white rum scowl. And we laughed and knew then that death was just something that happened to dead people. short poem, short sonnet. Um, there's a, a Trinidadian uh, filmmaker called Marielle Brown who a few years ago made a film about her father who was a poet. Her father was a poet and she had a very different relationship with her father. Her father was very present in her life, made sure he was present. Um, so that's one strand that this poem approaches. It deals with the conversation that I had with her. Um, but also, this is a good place to end this reading because it's a, you know, when you write elegies or you write sort of poems in, you know, in homage to people that have passed, uh, in the literary tradition, if you look at all the poems that were written in this way, like the poem, I mean, I can't think just off the top of my head, but if you read poems that, let's say, um, Auden wrote about someone else dying or something, there's always a sense of, well, he's dead, but I'm still here. You know, there's always, oh, and, you know, I'll carry on. You know, there's something there. I remember um, realizing this many years ago when I was, like, studying and stuff, that there was this thing that, that memorial poems that were in memory of people that had died or requiems or whatever had this thing of, well, they're gone, I'm here, you know. Um, it's a way of sort of being reflective and bringing it back to yourself. So this poem kind of brings it back to me. Memory Ghost, one. At sea, at Hastings, with a filmmaker who loved her father, who speaks about the sea and its relation to poems her father wrote. And I hope that when I am gone into that gone momentum, that my daughters will also remember me as fondly as the filmmaker remembers her father and forgives him his human failings. I hope that there is still time to shape the ghost that must enter their memory. Thank you for listening. Rod Youngs. Jason Yard. Thank you.
Oh, thank you.